Every week on our regular episodes of Shift Shift Bloom, I get to interview people whose lives are very different from mine. And we talk about how each has navigated the twists and turns inherent in transformation. But I wonder, what's universal about how people change? What are the common threads, the connective tissue? I tend to look at change through the lens of my own experience, for the most part, the artist's life. Lucky for us, my curiosity is shared by the co-creator of Shift Shift Bloom, Dr. John Lyons, luminary and author in the field of clinical psychology and systems change. Who better to help me unpack all the questions that fill my mind when the interviews are over? I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, TCOM Takeaways, my conversation with Dr. John Lyons about a recent interview. Welcome back to the TCOM studio. We are here with Dr. John Lyons to record our last TCOM takeaway. And this week's episode, I interviewed an African immigrant who we are calling Leonie. And I'm very interested to hear your take on our conversation, Dr. Lyons. Welcome. Well, it's, yeah. So the last uh, session of season one, Kristen. So hopefully we'll be moving forward with season two in the Yay. not too distant future. Um, anyway, what an incredible interview. I mean, so I, I, that. I mean, her story by itself is compelling and, and fascinating, and but it's also incredibly nuanced. And your interview with her touched on so many things that are thematic, both in terms of the, the uh, interviews before and in terms of just life. I think there's, I mean, there's a, it's a very, very rich in terms of the implications of the things that she was talking about and so forth. And I got to tell you, if I, if I ever needed an ob I would love to have her. I mean, she seems like she would be extremely competent. So Yeah, that's interesting that you, you say that. I know a little tongue in cheek, of course, because you don't need an OBGYN, but there's an immediate feeling with her. The minute you see her, that I, I can't, I'm trying to find the words to describe it. Like she has this energy that just puts out to the other person, you're you're okay. You know, she she has this really deep vibration of safety. You know, and and um, care. Well, I was I was quite impressed with her, and I was impressed with the story, and I I was impressed with the interview. So I, I enjoyed it actually an enormous amount. And I do where have do some you, takeaways. So yeah, where do you want to start? Six. So well, one is sort of on the lighter but deeper notion. I mean, it's kind of uh, it's also nuanced. So I I flashed, you know, this was a power couple, right? I mean, she's a very smart lady. Yeah. She married a very smart man. They're both successful and powerful. They dated each other for a year before they got married. I mean, so I, I flashed, uh, you know, apologies to Forrest Gump, but it made me think, you know, relationships are kind of like a box of chocolates. You just don't mm-hmm. know what you're going to get. And the fact that it turned out so badly, despite, you know, doing all the right things, right? I mean, there's nothing yeah. you could tell from her early story that would be signs that that would be a problem. 
it just de- developed one-to-one, which is why I think people should not beat themselves up when they find themselves in relationships that are no longer satisfying because life intrudes and things happen, and it's not anybody's fault necessarily. Um, it's the circumstances change, and you need to get out when you need to get out. So mm. I think uh, it was striking how, you know, if, if you talk about, you know, not getting... You know, you could say, oh, I get married, and a month after I met him, you know, it's a whirlwind kind of thing and so forth and so on. But that's not the case, so. Yeah, she did her due diligence. She did her due diligence, right? And mm-hmm. so there's no real take-home from that. The take-home is that life intrudes and people change, and you have to change with it one way or the other. So. You do hear her say that she should have known and that there were tiny, I don't even think she called them red flags, but just sort of her sense of seeing his friends, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I don't disagree with you that she is not to blame. Um, but I think she, in from her perception, there is a sense of, I should have known. Well, it'd be impossible to go through something that ugly and not have second thoughts about what, what did I miss, you know? Sure. But I think basically she said it. It was, I mean, so if you want to put clinical terms on it, she created a narcissistic wound in a in a person with a narcissistic challenges, and narcissistic wounds never heal. They they never heal, and so that's the story of their relationship. Is that so? Narcissistic mm-hmm. wounds never heal. So if if you identify that you're with someone who's a narcissist or maybe a sociopath, uh, that's not going to ever change. Well, so if you're dealing with somebody who's a narcissist Mm -hmm. and you do something that directly threatens their very sense of themselves, Mm. they will never be able to forgive you. Ever. That's what that means. Narcissistic wounds don't heal. There will never be forgiveness. So you could uh, get them to not be hateful to you if you, uh, you know, made up to them, you know, and, and agree that they're right and apologize for your mistake, so to speak, but you'll never get them to own their mistake and you'll never get them to forgive you when you wound them. So it's, you see this, you know, people say that our former president is a narcissist and you see that in him, he's not mm-hmm. really capable of forgiveness unless somebody comes and kisses his ring and then he's able to do that. But if they don't, then the rage never goes away. It just never does. That's why she had to move two continents, right? I mean, she's smart. Yeah. It's a, because it's the only safety that she could ever find. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, what's number two? Number, well, that actually was number two. Mm. Um, so the number three is a really interesting and, and a complex one. And I'm a little bit hesitant to even go there with... Um, who, what I do and who our audience are and, and what you do and so forth. But there is this emerging trend and theme, and she spoke to it as eloquently, as articulately as anybody, uh, that this sort of, I'm going to call it, I've been looking for a word to describe it, uh, so I'm going to use a label. I'm going to call it psychotherapeutic elite um, of this idea that you need to process things and you need to deal with your feelings and you need to kind of understand things. You need to kind of, sounds like you're angry, kind of discussions about stuff in order to get through things. Mm. 
And if you listen to her carefully, uh, no, actually, you need to understand what you need to do and you need to do it. And if you spend too much time processing it, she could be dead, right? She could, or yeah. her kids could be taken, right? And so yeah. sometimes you just have to do it and processing it and thinking it through and understanding how you feel is maybe not to the point. So I thought that was really, and, and several other interviews have spoken to the same basic idea in the moment, that sort of psychotherapy kind of view of the world may actually be destructive if you if you pull the thread completely. It's certainly at least not helpful. So so I, I was struck mm. by that. Her you know you some you just have to do it. And you know yeah. if you think about what she just did, she understood that her kids were her priority. And yes. then she made her decision to do what she had to do for her kids. And everything else just kind of flowed from that. It all worked out for her, but I'm sure it was hell. But she didn't spend a lot of time processing it. And I would wonder if that's not probably a really good thing. So because if you spent all your time processing it, maybe you would be unable to act. And that by not processing it, you're freer to act. So that would be a hypothesis that is bouncing around in my head. Yeah, it was, it kept coming clearer to me as she was speaking that she had developed something, an instinct, um, just like a real fast way of thinking, a real fast way of, I'm going to put quotes around processing, but there's no time to feel feelings. Sure, maybe I'll feel them later and maybe they'll have an impact and maybe they'll maybe the impact will be bad or good and maybe I will have to process them later. But right now, this is not the time to feel feelings. This is the time to make huge decisions quickly. I mean, some of it, I wonder, Dr. Lyons, if some of that is adrenaline and we all have access to that when, when we're in these really dangerous situations, we might make quicker decisions. But for most of us who aren't dealing with life-threatening situations, on a daily basis, we get really caught up in our feelings and feeling the feelings mm -hmm. and thinking about the feelings and unpacking the feelings in order to get to some decision. And she just didn't have that luxury. Right. The question is, what's the more helpful strategy, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what I began to question, right? Is it mm -hmm. is this notion that unpacking your feelings and sorting them all through, is that actually helpful? Or is that just kind of epiphenomenal to life and just a kind of a distraction and give us a reason to not do anything which is mm. it's sort of like anyway so that's that's the provocative thought that i got from this particular thing it's it's counter to a lot of stuff that we preach on a regular basis in terms of helping people right and certainly it's counter to most of the inside-oriented psychotherapy kinds of approaches in certain respects right but it's not it's not counter to what we know about brain biology, um, and it's mm, not counter mm -hmm. to what a lot of people talk about in terms of them making you know difficult decisions in times of, of duress. So I, I just um, I just was struck by that and kind of wondered, and I think that might be something that we want to pull a, a thread on to, to get a, take a deeper dive into this kind of notion: is that what's the best way to support change, right? I mean, I'm beginning to think from listening to all the folks we've talked to, it's knowing what you want to achieve mm -hmm. and then going for it and mm -hmm. not having a lot of thoughts about it, not have a lot of, certainly yeah. no second thoughts, just just drive and do it and, and 
I, when I was, it reminded me also, I flashed when I was a, a teenager, you know, Cat Stevens, who's become Yusuf Mohammed, but he, uh, he saved my life, actually, from as a teenager, because I, I loved his music, and I listened to the words, and there was a song, it wasn't one of his popular ones, but it was called Silent Sunlight, and the, the words were silent, sleeping horses heave away, put your backs to the golden hay, don't ever look behind at what you've done, for your work has just begun. There'll be the evening in the end. Until that time arrives, you can rest your eyes and begin again. And there's a part of her story that reminded me of that song. Wow. That was a wonderful recitation. You know those Thank lyrics you. inside and out. Well, I know those eyes. Like I said, he saved my life. Yeah. It's funny because before we started recording, you were speaking of your wife and, and her her gifts. And you asked me if I had them. And we're, we're talking now about sort of this gift of insight, intuition, knowing. And I think that's part of Leone's ability too. It's just that you could look at that as a gift. And I, but what I think is underlying that to be able to make decisions from that, from just that knowingness is trusting it. You know, not just really, really trusting it and saying, this is not going to lead me down the wrong path. And if it does, okay, I'll, I'll make another move there, but I know what I have to do right now on some level that cannot be explained and in some way that doesn't need any further processing. And, and Greg Dyke said the same thing, but in a very Mm -hmm. different way and in completely different circumstances, Mm -hmm. but it's the same message, basically, you know. You know what you want, and you try to achieve it. And so I thought yeah. I just was struck by that. Are we on number four? Yeah, and so that's the the thing that you believe in, the thing that drives your decision-making. So it's, which mm-hmm. is, you know, she said, I, I always choose my children, right? I'm going to choose my children. So I think that core value, that core premise of her life was fundamental in her being able to change. I mean, she made some massive changes, I mean. She did, and she really illuminated that for me really beautifully when I asked her. She said, I could have chosen to continue to practice medicine. I could have put myself first, really. And I'm sure a part of her wanted to, but it was not, it was second on her priority list. And so that kind of clarity is really helpful. And I, th- yep. I think sometimes people struggle with, we've talked about this before because we're back at values, mm-hmm. but people really struggle with feeling like they know what to do and that they're clear because they're, either their priorities are shifting or their values are shifting or they haven't given them thought. So that's a, this is a great lesson that's coming out. I, I do, I, I love what you're already kind of leaning into with her that somehow her story and there's no intentionality on our part that we finished with her. But somehow her story seems to kind of make the threads of the themes of the whole season very, very clear. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, th- I, was, I was actually blown away by that as a part of my experience of listening to her interview. I mean, it's mm. like, wow. So these, these are the themes again. Because the other one, and what my next point is, another one key theme, there's always a key relationship. Always. So I was waiting for it with her because, you know, she talked a bit about her family and her sisters and so forth, but it didn't sound like they were central until she got to the U.S. and and, uh, met her second husband. 
And it sounds like he was a key for her in her current adjustment, you know, her rock and so forth. And I think the importance of relationships is central to the themes mm-hmm. across everybody we've talked to. That, uh, there's all, it doesn't have to be a lot. It has to be one. So, and that's so consistent yeah. with uh, Bruce Perry's research that showed that for kids surviving trauma, if you have one strong relationship... You do okay. You do better than if you don't have any. And having six is no much, much, much better than one. You just have to have at least one relationship. So I thought that was um, an important kind of insight that she had in terms of how she talked about her story. Yeah, what jumps out to me about that, that um, moment in her life when she met someone else and fell in love and got married, I was just... I don't know if impressed is the right word, but I thought, wow, you know, she really didn't let that bad experience in her first marriage make her hard. That's because she didn't process it. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, maybe. Maybe, Maybe. right? I mean, we, we don't know, right? I mean, we don't know that she didn't spend too much time thinking on it so that she didn't become fearful of it. Yeah, and as you're saying that, I know you're, you're you're kidding me a little bit, but you know, when when we maybe when we don't process things, we we don't develop baggage around them, you know, and we and and being out of something that feels bad is good, right? And you don't really need to know more than that. Yeah, right? yeah, it can be that simple. Oh, this feels simple. bad. I am going to take myself out of it. This feels good. I'm going to go towards it. You know, right. if only everything really were that simple. But right. Well, if you if you if you buy her her message, you know, there's a way out of everything. Maybe actually everything is that simple if we choose to make it that simple. I think the key then, if you buy her message, which you can probably tell I do, um, <laughs> you really have to know what your values are. You have to know what you want, and then you have to live that. And that's what being authentic is. And if you do that, then maybe things are quite simple because they either fit your value values or they don't. And it's quite literally that simple. Mm. So maybe we overly complicate stuff. Maybe we uh, psychobabble our ways into complexities that don't really exist. And maybe we can find ways to simplify things that are actually more efficient. It's, it strikes me as, as rather Taoist, you know, so, or you know, more, much more of an Eastern view of, uh, of life and meaning and so forth than, than a Western view. But I don't know. It just struck my Yeah. Head. Not to tell tales out of school, but I, I have a good friend who's going through a very bad situation in a marriage right now. And a lot of people just keep saying to her, why don't you get divorced? And there are all of these complicating factors. And so I think even though at the bottom line, ultimately, she knows she must and she knows she will, the logistics of Western modern life make it so that there's more steps between here and there than she maybe would like there to be, but she has to go through them. Yep. So if she takes Leonie's advice, she just does it and stops talking to her friends about it, right? So. Yep. Right. Well, yep. that's the challenge, right? And so it's hard to know whether that talking about it is a way to work yourself into actually doing it 
where it's actually a strategy to slow it down so you don't feel the pressure to have to do it because at least you're talking about mm-hmm. it. I don't know. I mean, I, and I suspect it's different for different people. Yeah, I think what's remarkable about the other remarkable piece of Leone's, um, let's say, mastery over just doing it is she didn't really give any regard to the unknown. She just went into it. It was like, I I think that a lot of times when we're thinking through a big decision, there's a lot of holding back from taking the leap because of the unknown. We don't know what's going to happen when we do this. And again, that wasn't even like a consideration for her. It was like- Right, she knew the only place her ex-husband didn't have connections with the U.S., she was going to the U.S., boom. Yep. Right. I mean, what, yep. what, a, what a huge leap. What a huge leap, yeah. And what a huge thing to have to do twice in a row. Right, yeah. <laughs> but that's, if you buy her philosophy, that's just what it is, right? That's the nature mm-hmm. of living and, uh, you know, moving on. What's yeah. next, right? Yeah, she didn't seem to get caught up at all. Um, you know, I'm putting myself in her shoes. She did not seem to get caught up at all in, oh, my God here we go again. Right. I just did this. Yes. You know, and I could see myself in that moment, just my head exploding with all of the thoughts and the feelings about why, why this pattern? Why, yeah. why is this happening again? You know? Right. And it's just, it, again, no time, uh, clear, clear value, clear directive done. I think there's a lesson there for all of us actually. So yeah. Yeah. For sure. I I, 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 you know, I live in my head, so it, uh, it'll be a challenge for me. <laughs> I think, it, I think it says something important, though. I did. Uh, are it, you on? Yeah, I'm on the last couple that are kind of all related together. So they're okay, which is sort of the cultural lens. I mean, I, there's a couple of things she said that mm. I was like, I felt a tinge of uh, of happy pride. I mean, that she said mm. anything can ha- anything is possible in the U.S. Right? I thought that's nice. That's nice to hear that. I mean, that's the the um, saying, but I think for those of us who have lived through the last 20 years of constant negativity, uh, it's sometimes you lose track of that. So it was very good to hear that. And she also um, said that the racism was less here than in Europe. Now, I don't know where she lives in the U.S. I'm not asking, and I don't know where she lived in Europe, and I'm not asking, but I always thought that's remarkable. That's that's also good news. I mean, not that Mm. there's no racism, right? But it's if I mean, at least better is better than worse. So, um, so anyway, those two yeah. things were like little bits of positive that I thought, oh, that's nice to hear. So, but her whole discussion of she used the word colorism, which I thought yes. was so 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 internationally accurate. Because if you really look, I mean, we call it racism in the U.S., but if you if you look at it in like Mexico or in South America or in places like the Philippines. It actually is discrimination based on skin color, the shade of your skin, the darker your skin, the more discrimination. So colorism might be actually the right word. But I was struck by her conversation about her experience in the lab. Um, Now, these are just two black women working in a lab somewhere, right? So that's not representative of the African-American community. But And I don't think... Uh, We should think of it in that way. But I do think it highlights that this stuff is just about differences. This is what it's about. You know, all this, all our bias and discrimination is really about differences of how when you see somebody who is different from you, then you are 
prone to make them the other. And that was clearly her experience. You know, she's made the other there. Even though from like an old white guy's perspective, they look more alike than they look different. But from their perspectives, they were very different from each other. And so because of that difference, then that highlighted that. But it also, her story demonstrated the solution to that, which is getting to know each other, right? And Ignorance is a treatable condition, right? Bias is a treatable condition, and it comes from getting to know, getting to know each other. That's why, you know, the research shows that the parts of the United States that are the most anti-immigrant are the places with the fewest immigrants, and the places with the most immigrants are the most open and receptive to immigration, and that's that phenomena. If you live next door to somebody who comes from a very different cultural background than you, you find that great. You find that interesting. You find that enlightening. And if you don't, you find it scary that they might move in there because you don't know what it means. And so I think that gives us a window of how we solve this problem. She specifically used the term knowledge or the term education and just how they didn't know really, they, these African-American women didn't really know about Africa, about where she had come from. And and when I did my research, you see also the bias gets fed on the other side where there are misunderstandings and, and misinformation being absorbed. But once we know more and learn more and are willing to learn more, it can it can break down walls. And I, I thought that was a similarity between uh, Leone and Cynthia as well, talking about the True. idea of, of getting educated at, and that being a step one towards change of any kind. So any of our, li- in our, any of our listeners who are currently poor and want their kids to not be, I think there's some clear messages from our guests. Focus on education. Focus on the education of your children above all other things. So that's that's such an important thing for rising above poverty. Yeah, we've had, and now I'm, as I'm thinking about the other similarity between Leonie and Cynthia, both immigrants, both very positive feelings towards the U.S. and their experience in the U.S., which is interesting. Well, I guess you could, can't always believe what you read in the papers or online, right? So maybe uh, things are not as bad as people present them to me. Well, we can hope. We can and hope. I'm, gl- I'm glad we've had two women of color mm-hmm. s- share that and share those feelings. And I think there's probably more more to it than that. But it, it is, I, I agree with you, it, it, it triggers my sense of, phew, we're right. not doing so bad, maybe. We're not doing as bad as it feels sometimes. Was that your... Your six? Did you get your yes, six or so all, out I there? All six. Let me just make sure I took some random uh, notes. But yes, I got them all out there. One thing that we didn't talk about that fascinated me a bit about Leone was her ability to keep things really close to the vest. Her ability to like hold her experience and hold like secrets really tightly. And I wonder if, and it's related to what you said right at the top about not processing things, but it just, to me, hearing her and hearing her talk about keeping the secret, not telling anyone she was getting on that plane, 
I was shaking with, I could never do that, you know? Uh, and, and so I just wondered if, if that struck you at all, like, yeah, so I think that was impressive. And also, you know, it does suggest something about her style and personality, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I think that would be a very tough thing to do. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm, I tend to overshare uh, uh, those kinds of things myself. So I can, I can see how you would feel like, oh, geez, yikes. I mean, how would you do that? So... It's hard to know actually what you do unless you found yourself in that situation. Yeah. I mean, if you're really worried about your well-being and the well-being of your children, you might be motivated and you might go into full actress mode um, and pull it off, right? So. Yeah. Were there any other themes that you want to touch on that you can connect to other guests uh, now that we have? a full palette of 10 episodes and we kind of think back over them. Yeah. I think the, the relationship one is mm -hmm. clear. So this is more like a recap than something new. Um, I think the most profound is knowing what you want, knowing what you believe in, knowing what's important to your heart and then doing it and not, you know, second guessing yourself and not kind of, you know, just, drive through. I think that's a theme across everybody. Some more clearly than others, but I think all of them had this kind of core idea of what they wanted to achieve or be or become, a core idea, very fundamental. And, and that's at a certain level, simple in that sense. Um, yeah. And I think that was so important. Yeah. And I think in each of their ways, and again, this was not really intentional in our selection of guests, but to me, it seems like sometimes there are too many choices in life, like in the, around this idea of figuring out what you want. And it seems like our guests are examples of like having a confrontation with a big thing. Like not a little thing, you know, having a right. confrontation with a large issue or a large change and yeah. having to get clear or know or ask questions around what do I want. And I think a lot of our days, I feel like I'm shuffling around really small questions, you know, and uh. I find I find that aspect interesting maybe like just the idea of don't sweat the small stuff because the big things will come up and when the big things come up that's when you're really going to need to know what you value and what you want and who you are yes i would i would agree with that so uh, you know since i was quoting song lyrics i have another favorite one it's guadalcanal diary um from their song saturday so many choices it's not fair i get in my car and just sit there right so he's mm -hmm. talking about you know having so many things there's so many options that it becomes paralyzing and i think that's increasingly true i mean yeah all things are possible and if you sit down and make a list of all things you'll be spending your entire life making a list of all things that are possible so Mm -hmm. you have to really be able to focus. So I would agree that, you know, don't sweat the small stuff is probably a philosophy to live by. My mm -hmm. father, before he passed, called it peace of mind, you know, just looking for peace of mind. You know, that's all. That's all. That's the only thing he wanted. Um, and I think that's that same idea is you're not getting caught up in lots of second guessing or thinking about it or something. Just 
Just be in the moment. I think if you look at the mindfulness work, it's a it's very similar concept. So I think there's this whole kind of theme away from thinking, actually. So it's you know I was trained yeah. in cognitive behavioral kind of approaches, so that feels like heresy, you know, because how you think is how you feel, and you know you do base it. I think I'm less confident that that's very real, actually, after listening and thinking about these talks. That's what I wanted to go back to with you. you. You read my mind there is what have you learned over these 10 episodes that unravels something you might have been holding on to as a truism or absolute or just something you were more certain about when we started that maybe you're not so certain about anymore, if that's even fair to ask. Yeah, I think uh, probably the the uh, cognition as an underlying feature of decision-making. I'm not very sure about that. Wow. Is that a big thing for you to say? Oh, big thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, that, in fact, you know, because I mean, a lot of my career is about helping people be rational in their decision-making, because that's what we do in, in the uh, clinical operations kind of work that we do, is teach people how to think about organizing information and making informed decisions on behalf of others. Um, Mm-hmm. But in terms of applying that to yourself, I think there might be some limitations to that, right? So that's so that's probably the the biggest take home from these uh, these interviews for me personally. It's like, okay, so what's the role of uh, preconscious, unconscious, whatever you want to call it? I mean, non cognitive was what I would call it, um, mm. non cognitive processes in making good decisions. Old school, you'd call it, you know, your heart or your gut or whatever internal organ you want to attribute your thinking, your non-brain thinking to. Do you think you will personally start to ask those sources the next time you need to make a change or make a choice? Well, I actually, the other realization I have is that's what I do anyway. I mean, that's what I've always Mm -hmm. done. I always use my my intuition for lack of a better word but I don't necessarily apply that in how I think about working with other people so I think it kind of returned me to thinking about how I do it relative to how I tell other people to do it okay and the potential uh, uh, I don't want to go so far as say hypocrisy but the potential difference of perspective you know that that, mm-hmm. that might lead you to say, okay, well, what's the limits of logical, cognitive, you know, decision-making? And when, because I think it's extremely difficult to apply intuitive decision-making to someone else's life. Yes. In fact, I think it might even be unethical, actually, Mm -hmm. Uh, but when it's applied to your own. But what that means is we have to set things up to support people making those kinds of non-cognitive decisions for themselves and what implications does that have or how you think about designing helping systems yeah and that i'm getting a smile on my face because that takes me back to some of our our original conversations as colleagues and new friends and new neighbors prior to even cooking up this idea about the podcast which is how, where do our worlds intersect? And, you know, just sort of sharing with you what it's like to be in the room with actors or as an acting teacher, as, as a, as a, you know, artist in an ensemble and really working from that very guttural heart space, 
spirituality, whatever you want to call it. Um, but also knowing there is there is relationship between what you do and what I do, and yes. and and how do they how can they work together? So, I think that's a nice way to come to the to the end of our uh, first season road. Mm. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for helping me in in such a huge way make this happen and giving me the opportunity to talk to people I never would have yeah. sought out, you know, just for fun. I've been moved by every guest and I've learned from each one. And it, it's real privilege to get to sit across from someone and hold space for their story to be told. And as, as Jordan said in the very first interview, people sharing their story is a gift and it's a gift. So we've been gifted by uh, yeah. uh, these uh, nine incredible people that told their stories, and uh, that uh, I'll forever be grateful for. And uh, mm-hmm. it's been a, a pleasure, and I feel like I've learned a lot. And each each new interview is, is is something different. So, so I appreciate that. It's been a it's been a lot of fun. I'm hopeful that we'll have another season, and it'll be exciting to talk about what that will look like. And um, we'll keep our listeners posted. All right, I look forward to it too. Take care. Good to see you. Bye. Bye. Shift Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at PradeFoundation.org and at TCOMConversations.org. And by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at iph.uky.edu.